Think of the person that you look up to the most. Does that person have any failings? The passage that we're going to look at today is an interesting contrast to the one that we looked at last week. Last week was an uplifting passage full of God's promises, full of Abraham's faith, uh, a faith that's cited in the New Testament as being uh, the sort of faith that we as Christians today ought to model. And then come verses 10 through 20. Some people say Abraham's a liar in this section. At the very least, there seems to be a wavering of that faith. And I think what's going on in this passage as we proceed through the story of Abram, later Abraham's life, is that we see a couple of things over and over again. We see God's faithfulness. We see that recurrent theme of sin, of doubt, of unbelief that goes back to the first few chapters of Genesis. We see God keeping His promise to set apart a people for Himself as part of a fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 3.15 that a descendant of Eve is someday going to deliver people from their sin. We see all of these themes coming together in this story. We start out in verse 10, and we say... Did Abraham do wrong in going down to Egypt? It's interesting that Abraham chose to go down to Egypt because what had God just said to him in verse 7? To your descendants, I will give this land. Abraham goes down to Egypt. Now, it gives a reason. There's a famine in the land of Canaan. And so, Abram probably thinks to himself, as we would have thought, there's no food here. There's food in Egypt. At least we can make that assumption based on him going down there. My needs will be met if I go down to the place where it appears that things are available that I need. But God had just promised him, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to look after you. I'm going to bless you, make you a blessing. All of these great promises that God had just made to Abram but Abram goes down to Egypt. Now this going down to Egypt, rightly or wrongly, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, this going down to Egypt anticipates, foreshadows if you will, several things. One is when the children of Israel go down to Egypt. And they're going down to Egypt uh, with Jacob, who later is called Israel, is tied to God's provision. Genesis 50 and verse 20, Joseph's going to say to his brothers, you meant it for evil that you sold me into slavery and told dad that I was dead and hoped that I was dead so that your guilt wouldn't come back on you, but God meant it for good. Put me in a position of authority, gave me the means to preserve the life of my family, fulfilled the words that God is going to speak to Abram in uh, chapter 15, with regard to the fact that this was going to take place. They were going to go down to Egypt, be there for four generations, and then God was going to deliver them with a mighty hand. We're going to see other parallels between what God does in the book of Exodus 
and what takes place here in Genesis chapter 12 with regard to uh, this question of the death of the males, the question of plagues, the signs of God's deliverance, the accompanying of great wealth. All of these things, I think, are foreshadowing what God is going to do for the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. And yet Abraham's going down to Egypt does not seem to be a sign of faith. It seems to be a sign of doubt. Because could God provide for his people in famine? Abraham didn't have the benefit of the accounts that we know of Elijah and the ravens by the brook, right? Or of Elijah going to the house of the widow and God making sure that the bread and the oil and all those things didn't run out as long as he was living there. Abraham didn't have the benefit of a story like that, but did the same God who did that later on in Israel's history, was he the one that was making promises for Abraham? Yes. And so it seems that Abraham should have trusted God and potentially remained in the land of Canaan. And yet, even though he did not, and he goes down to the land of Egypt, God uses it to foreshadow the way that he's going to bring glory to himself in the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. We come to verse 11. Here's Abraham's scheme. When he got near to Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Now, there are some people that have disputed this fact. And I think that the response, there's, there's several different responses to this, one of which would be, in the course of a lifespan of 100, 120 years, she's barely approaching middle age. And so while in certain periods in human history since then, 60 is the end of life, 70 is the end of life, in their day, it would have been more like being middle-aged. Um, another factor to consider would be the reality that standards of beauty vary from culture to culture. And that certainly is uh, something that can be easily observed even looking at our own country in the last hundred years. So do we need to take that and say, well, that's a ridiculous statement. Clearly, he's speaking that ironically. No, we can take it at face value. Whatever the specific reason that this statement is true, we can assess that it is true as it is recorded. What does Abram fear is going to take place? When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. So Abram's caught between two difficulties. One is the reality of the famine, and the other is the concern that Sarai will survive the famine, but she's going to be somebody else's wife, and I'm going to be dead in the land of Egypt. So he's caught between these two concerns. Which goes back again to the question of faith. If God says, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, and he doesn't yet have any descendants, what has to take place in order for Abram to have descendants to possess the land? He has to live long enough to have some kids. And so again, there is an acceptance of what God has said at face value, but not a complete committing of himself to it. There's this sense that, you know, the promise has been made, but I've got to sort of help things along a little bit. And here's my scheme for doing so. Verse 13 is the question where, based solely on this passage, it appears that Abram is being dishonest. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. 
Genesis 20 explains this a little bit further because Abraham, Abraham does the same thing at a later point in his life. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 12 says this, Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness that you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. And so we have evidence that this took place, not just these two accounts recorded in the Bible, but possibly more times, that it was not necessarily a lie for Abram to say that she was his sister, because she was, in fact, his half-sister. But what is the real issue that's going on that we get this, this sense of disapproval from the tone of this, this end of the chapter of 12? Why? Because... When he says, she's my sister, he's not saying, she's my sister, because that's the um, question that's being asked. He's saying, she's my sister, because he thinks it's going to help him get out of trouble. He is... So, uh, regarding the nature of lying... Do you have to always say every single thing that you know to every person that you meet? I think we would say no. For one, that would be very tedious. For another, we see the example of Jesus in the New Testament saying something about, is he going to go down to the feast? And then later he goes down to the feast. He doesn't tell his family, who are demonstrating unbelief, everything that is in his mind of what he intends to do. And he was not obligated to do so. So you're not always required to say everything that you know to every person that you meet. But when your intention is to gain an advantage for yourself and to harm someone else by only telling part of what you know, it's not expressing the sort of faithfulness and the sort of truthfulness that honors God and reflects his character. So is it by definition a lie? No. Was it done with bad intent? Yes. Because what's going to happen? Well, if you look at verse 16, Abraham's going to get rich off of this scheme. If you look at verse 17, plagues are going to come on Pharaoh's house in punishment for them jeopardizing the heir of Abraham. And so Abram's not-quite-lie is going to bring him great advantage and great harm to someone else, and therefore it was not honoring to God, and it was not an expression of faith. But this is his plan. It comes to verse 14. It came about when Abram came to Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, so what Abram had feared seems to be taking place. Go back to verse 13 for a moment. There's a fascinating parallel between what it says in verse 13 and what it says in one of the Ten Commandments. Look at the end of verse 13. So that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Exodus 20 doesn't explain it quite that way, the command about honoring father and mother. Um, 
it says, does say that your days may be prolonged, but when the command is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, listen to the way that the command to honor father and mother is repeated. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. So in the Ten Commandments, at least in the second repetition of the Ten Commandments, what is expressed with regard to obedience to what God has said? That it may go well with you, that you may have long life. What is Abraham's scheme supposedly going to accomplish? That it may go well with me, that I may live. Where is Abraham's trust when he makes that statement to his wife with regard to the scheme that he's coming up with? Abraham's trust is in himself or in his wife's ability to deliver him, not in God's. Back to verse 15. Pharaoh's officials saw her, Sarai, and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. What other echoes do we see in this story? Do we see in Genesis someone seeing something that appeared beautiful and taking it, even though they shouldn't have taken it? Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree. Here's something that they shouldn't have taken. And because someone had failed to do his job as the leader and the husband in the home, there was disobedience that took place. Another, another parallel that's interesting to, to consider. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, when it says taken into Pharaoh's house, most likely what's meant here is that she was added to his collection of wives that brought him advantages with various uh, powerful people in the surrounding area, and not that he took her as, a, as his wife in the, in the strictest sense of what that would mean. So essentially what's happened is the relationship has been created, but it hasn't been fulfilled. Why do I say that? Verse 16 reflects this. Abram seems to negotiate this marriage relationship, contract, whatever you want to call it, and benefits from it by receiving great wealth. So it seems like Abram's made a pretty good move. Granted, he's misplaced his wife, at least for a time, but he's got a lot of stuff. He's not starving in Canaan. His scheme has worked. But remember what God said in chapter 12, in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There is going to be, as will be mentioned later in a passage that I forgot to write down the reference of, uh, a sense that the patriarchs, God blesses them, protects them, rebukes kings on their behalf, and that's exactly what's going to happen in verse 17. The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Something that did not belong in Egypt because it was not God's plan, not God's purpose for them to be there, at least indefinitely. There's this parallel to what's going to happen in the book of Exodus, right? God strikes Egypt with plagues to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. There's sort of a foreshadowing of this in that God strikes the house of Pharaoh with plagues because they do not have the right 
to have Sarai there as Pharaoh's wife because of this scheme that Abram and Sarai have come up with. And God's not going to let them threaten the fulfillment of the promises that he has made. Instead, this turmoil, difficulty set of plagues has come upon Pharaoh and his house. Think about if you were Pharaoh. What would your response be? Now the question is of, of there's, this, there's this question, this pause that we should have of, is the thing that Abraham feared going to take place even though he made all these schemes and it seemed like it was going to work out a few verses before? Because if you've lied to Pharaoh, who's a powerful ruler, and he already has possession of your wife, and you've made him angry, what's likely the next thing that's going to happen? He's going to kill you. Which is the thing that you feared all along, the thing that you were trying to prevent all along, and the thing that your scheme failed to prevent you from. Protect you from. Verse 18. Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? There is a real sense that Abram has done harm to Pharaoh by his scheming. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Verse 19, Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Again, we have parallels to what's going to happen later in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh experiences the plagues. He's done with the people of Israel. He sends them out with mixed emotions, fear and anger and all of these other sorts of things. The same thing seems to be happening in this story. God spares Abram's life from the wrath of Pharaoh. Abram goes out with not just his wife. He's not escaping only with his life, but he's also escaping with all of the things that he had received from Pharaoh, it seems, because in the next chapter, it's going to say Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Which begs the question, was God okay with what Abram had done? And some people would say, well, he got to keep all the stuff, clearly it was okay. I think the answer would be, God intended to enrich Abraham by means of the ungodly people around him, but that didn't mean that it was okay the way that Abram went about receiving those things, right? Because God certainly could have granted him those blessings apart from Abram's scheme and this um, failed marriage arrangement and all these other sorts of things. Did Abram demonstrate faith in this last half of chapter 12? Nope. Which begs the question, why does the New Testament, why did the Jews hold Abram in such high regard? For two reasons. Because the Abraham that dies later in the book of Genesis is not the same one we see here in these first few chapters of the story of his life. God does a work with him. We, we expect it when we see people like Jacob later in the book of Genesis. And we start out from the beginning and we're like, well, Jacob's a rascal and then God transforms his life. And of course, God strengthened his faith and, and, and grew him in his relationship with God and all those sorts of things. But we don't think that about Abraham, right? But God had to do the same kind of work in Abraham's life that he's going to later do in Jacob's life, that he has to do in our lives. So what do we conclude from this chapter? 
the main point I think we should walk away with is what I put in the sermon title, which is that God is true even when Abraham wavered. God is true, God is faithful, God keeps His promises even when we don't trust Him like we should. Think about the passage in Timothy where it says, God is faithful, He cannot deny Himself. There are many times when our faith is not what it ought to be. And our response to discovering those times ought to be the response of the man who comes to Jesus and says, heal my child. And Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, help my unbelief. That ought to be our response because our faith is rarely what it ought to be, certainly not um, in many cases in light of all that God has done where it should be. God is faithful, and that ought to spur us to recognize that our faith ought to be growing in Him. God can bless us despite ourselves. Abraham's scheme was not okay, but God blessed him in spite of it. Not because of it, but in spite of it. Which is an important thing to keep in mind when we look around us today and we say, Well, that person must be honoring God because he's a millionaire. That person must be honoring God because look at the thousands of people that go to his church. Material blessing, if you will, is not a one-for-one correspondence to an obedient life. Now, there are places where God's material blessing was tied very closely to, for example, the, the obedience of the people of Israel. But there are other times where there is clearly no connection between the two things. And so we need to recognize that from this story of Abraham here, just because someone seems to be doing well off by human standards doesn't mean they're doing everything that God wants them to do, being everything that God wants them to be. We should take God at His word. When God says something, we should believe it. And that's hard for us to do, because there are many times when God says things and we say, that doesn't make sense, and really, you know what, God? Probably you can work it out, but you know what? I've got to kind of you know, make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. We say, we wouldn't say that about God, but that's what goes on in our hearts and minds. We pray, but we're like, you know what? I prayed about this, but I'm also going to worry about it too, because... God might have forgotten that I prayed a little bit ago about it. Maybe that only happens. Maybe that only happens with me. Has happened with you too? We rarely trust God as much as he deserves to be trusted. Abraham thought that if he came up with a scheme, he would guarantee the outcome. But God's sovereignty in this circumstance demonstrated that God was the one who was going to take care of Abraham. Abraham wasn't the one who was going to take care of Abraham. God was the one who was going to make sure that the promises were fulfilled, which is not to say we do foolish things. It's not to say we make no plans for the future. But it does mean if God has made a promise, we can rest in that promise. And then another thing that I think we ought to keep in mind is just this constant awareness 
I asked you at the beginning, what, as you think about someone that you look up to, do they have any failings? Every single person in the Bible, even the ones we count as heroes of the faith, were sinners. And the Bible keeps driving us forward, not letting us say, well, you know, Abraham's got to be the one. Or Noah, he was the one. Or Seth, he was the one. Or Adam, he was the one. All of them failed. Keeps pointing us to Jesus because he's the only one who is going to express perfect faith in God the Father. He's the only one that is going to act out perfect obedience to God the Father. And every other person that we look at in the history of the Scriptures fails. And so, a passage like this ought to remind us once again, we need Jesus. Because we're a lot like Abraham. Our faith wavers. We come up with our own schemes. But we can and should trust in God because God is faithful. God has promised us His Son and fulfilled that promise. And we have the benefit of trusting in Christ. And we have all of the promises that God has said will follow after we have trusted in Christ. So, in what ways in your life this morning are you being like Abraham and you know that God has made some specific command or given some specific promise and you say, you know what? I don't need to listen to that because I've got a better idea or I'm going to help God along a little bit or you know what? God probably can carry it out but I'm not really entirely convinced of it. Trust what God has said. Recognize who he said it to, obviously, because if we misunderstand Scripture and we just grab verses at random without thinking about who God said them to, yes, we're going to think that promises are for us that aren't for us. I'm not talking about that. There are things that God has very clearly said to his people in the church and things that are very clearly true about God because they occur over and over again throughout the Scriptures. When we consider those things, what we know God is like, what he has said to us as his people in the church today, do we take God at his word? Or do we waver like Abraham? May God help us to have faith that he grows in Abraham and that he is developing in us. Let's pray. Lord, in the last year, You've shown me many times when I'm a lot like Abraham. You brought circumstances into our family's life that are beyond my ability to make all better. I'm sure the same is true for each one of us in this room at some point in our lives. And sometimes when we come before you in prayer. We do not come in faith, but we're like the man who doubts in James. When we look at these stories from the Old Testament, we fail to see ourselves in them and see how we are a whole lot like them. 
Lord, our faith is often weak. We pray that you might strengthen it. Strengthen it through trials, as James speaks of. Strengthen it through demonstrating your blessing, as you prompted your people to do in the Old Testament, to see your hand in the way that you would bless them, to marvel and to praise you as a result of it. Lord, whichever is going on in our lives right now, whether it be a strengthening of our faith through trial or a strengthening of our faith through blessing, we pray that the result might be accomplished, that our faith would grow, not in ourselves, not in our own ability to work everything out, because there's a whole lot of life that's beyond our ability to fix, to bend to our will. Lord, instead, help us to trust in you. Of course, we ought to obey and do the things that you've called us to do, but we recognize that we cannot make everything always go the way that we want it to go. Instead, we must humbly bow before you who rule over all things to trust in you, to follow you, and to believe that what you are doing in our lives is for your glory and will bring about the good of your people in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.